Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Key, Inside Higher Ed's news and analysis podcast. I'm Doug Letterman, editor and co-founder of Inside Higher Ed, and we're meeting up today a few weeks into another semester in which the COVID-19 pandemic is casting a larger shadow than many of us thought and certainly hoped just a few months ago. We've been largely focused on other topics in recent episodes of this podcast, and it struck me that it might be time to deal with the elephant in the proverbial room. Many topics in higher education are hard to generalize about because of significant variations in institutional types and missions. This one has the added complication of enormous variation in how the coronavirus and politics related to the pandemic are playing out in different parts of the country. Plus, the situation is so fluid that trying to keep tabs on it is next to impossible, and assertions made one day may be out of date a few days later. With those caveats made, I invited onto this week's episode my colleague Elizabeth Redden, who has driven inside higher ed's coverage of the pandemic since its earliest days and continues to track its impact on institutions, students, and instructors as closely as anyone. In the last few days, she wrote pieces about how students are complying with their college's vaccination mandates and the regional differences in institutions' COVID policies. We'll dig into those and other topics in the conversation ahead as we try to make sense of how the pandemic is affecting higher education now and is likely to shape it going forward. First, though, a word from D2L, which is supporting today's episode. This episode of The Key is sponsored by D2L Brightspace, the LMS partner for top institutions around the world. D2L is a global leader with a cloud-based platform that is easy, flexible, and smart. See how you can level up your LMS at www.d2l.com. Now on to my discussion with Elizabeth Redden, senior reporter at Inside Higher Ed. She's been a core member of our editorial team since 2006 and has unexpectedly added the global pandemic to her areas of expertise alongside such topics as international higher education and religion. Elizabeth, welcome to The Key and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to give listeners a little peek behind the curtain at how we work. How have you approached trying to cover the pandemic's effects on higher education, given given the many strands uh, that it entails and how varied the effects are on different groups of constituents within higher education and on different types of colleges and universities? It's a big, broad terrain to cover. It's a very good question. Especially in the early days, it felt quite overwhelming because you could write virtually any story would be a pandemic story. You know, every aspect of university life was impacted by the pandemic, you know, university museums, libraries, research labs, you know, professors, lives, careers, students, you know, every, everything was a pandemic story. Everything is still a pandemic story to some degree. And the impacts did vary, you know, and continue to vary significantly across campuses, across different student groups, the degree to which different groups are personally being affected by the pandemic and the trauma that it's causing uh, really varies a lot across institutions, uh, ways in which some of the bigger picture impacts are playing out in such a way that might provide a window for other institutions, might provide some insight, some some examples. So I think certainly there's the deep dives of individual places with all the individual nuances, but a lot of increasingly, you know, trend coverage as well, you know, looking at some of the big picture trends and the big picture issues that colleges are grappling with across the board, issues like vaccine mandates, politicization of public health measures, degree to which colleges are using online learning this fall versus in-person learning. 
And that does vary across institutional types, across regions. So really try in those sort of broader stories to get a good range of colleges of different types and from different geographical areas in the United States, even while realizing that any single story is always going to be a sampling, right? And we, you know, pretending to comprehensiveness is not going to be helpful. Yeah. And that's something we struggle with, you know, pretty constantly, but it's probably exacerbated like so many things by the pandemic. And what we've seen, the usual things we're thinking about when we think about sort of the diversity of institutions, geography is playing a role now in a way that's probably greater than normal uh, because of the differences in red states and blue states and regions. And, And one story that we just published touches on a lot of those themes you just flagged. It was a story about sort of how colleges with vaccine requirements are faring in getting students to comply. And that's evidence both of the sort of differences across different regions and of the fluidity that I talked about earlier uh, in the introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about what you found uh, in that pretty wide-ranging survey of institutions? Of course, yeah. Part of why I wanted to write this was I was talking with some institutions in the summer in July. Uh, some of the institutions that were early adopters of vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine requirements had set deadlines of August 1st, August 15th, somewhere in those ranges for, you know, for students to report their vaccine status or their vaccination status. And, you know, I was hearing some level of nervousness in the summer, you know, the proportion of students who had reported at that point was fairly low. The big caveat was the deadline hadn't passed yet, right? And, you know, you always might have a flood of students at the end. And most colleges had also built in some time to follow up with students, right? And uh, once, once that deadline did pass. But nevertheless, I think there was some nervousness. I mean, I don't think there was any question that the elite universities could get good compliance. But more tuition-dependent, you know, enrollment-driven institutions, would they have significant numbers of students who say, no thanks, I'm going to go elsewhere? And that doesn't seem to have come to pass. You know, in the institutions I spoke with, uh, they generally had fairly small numbers of students who did not comply at all, you know, who just decided to take a leave of absence or not, or to take their classes online. There weren't institutions that were seeing gigantic exoduses of students. The number of students who either didn't get vaccinated or applied for and received an exemption was relatively low at most of the places I looked at. I will say there are still some colleges that are, especially some that announced mandates on the late side in August or after the Pfizer vaccine gained full approval in late August from the FDA. Uh, Their deadlines haven't passed yet, so they're still trying to get students to, to report their information. I mean, one thing that's quite clear from the data are the different vaccine uptake rates at uh, sort of flagship campuses versus regional campuses, for example. Um, University of New Mexico, for example, I believe their deadline is, I think it's September 30th for students to submit their vaccine information. So they still have some time, but at this point they're seeing you know, higher compliance uh, or higher vaccination rates that have been confirmed at the main campus in Albuquerque as opposed to the branch campuses, um, so different student demographics. Um, you know, and how colleges are handling this, I think varies too. I mean, there have been some that have taken a very hard line if you don't get your vaccine by this date, you are being disenrolled or you're, you're being disenrolled from in-person classes, you're going to be locked out of campus. There are others that are taking a bit of a softer line. Okay, the deadline September 30th. University of New Mexico would be an example of this actually for students. You know, the deadline September 30th. If you don't meet it, we're still going to let you stay on campus this fall and finish your classes if you submit to weekly testing, but you're going to have to go somewhere else for the spring, basically. But by and large, colleges, I think, are seeing pretty decent compliance with these requirements. I do think one variable that was the percentage of students who are getting and receiving exemptions from for these vaccine requirements. I, in the 
examples I looked at, there's probably about 15 different colleges in my most recent stories. You know, in that group, I think the percentage of students who had received exemptions in general, so somewhere around 3% to 12%. It does seem some schools are being more and less liberal in whether to grant exemptions, particularly religious exemptions, and more and less liberal in how vigorously they wish to police those sorts of claims. And, and what standards they're using too? Or are they, I mean, uh, do they need a, a letter from a clergy person or is it just a, uh, in most cases, is it just an assertion? Basically, states don't have to allow religious exemptions to vaccine requirements, but if they do, the courts have basically ruled that you can't discriminate between an organized religious belief and your own personal religious belief. I spoke with Peter McDonough last week, who was you know, vice president and general counsel for the American Council on Education. And he told me that generally speaking, colleges have to consider, is the religious belief sincerely held? Is it in fact a religious belief? And is there an undue burden imposed on the university for accommodating it? So a college could take a different position in regards to some of those questions. Is it sincerely held? Do colleges want to be in that position of questioning that? Shifting to what we're seeing this fall, I'll admit to being a bit surprised by how relatively smoothly things have gone on many campuses so far. With the inevitable need for a big fat asterisk that it's still early days, we haven't had cold weather forcing people indoors, etc. But we haven't seen lots of campuses having to shift all instruction online or put huge numbers of people into quarantine, let alone to consider closing down their campuses. Do you share that point of view? And if so, what do you attribute it to? I do share that sense. I mean, but I also remember last year there were campuses with large numbers of cases that kept going, you know, so I think the decision to suspend in-person operations, there are other considerations other than just the, you know, the health impact and and, (laughs) the political will to to, to close an institution or close in-person learning, even if it, it uh, you know, we saw campuses close for much smaller numbers, you know, much smaller percentages while other campuses kept going. Absolutely. So, yes. So I think the fact that, you know, there's this kind of marching on, I think at this point in the pandemic, there is this strong sense of let's let's march on, let's continue on. This is to some degree our new normal now. I have been a little surprised that I haven't heard a whole lot from colleges that are really in some of the hot spot affected, some of the southern states that have real strains in their hospital systems right now. You know, right. and I... Maybe credit, I think there's probably a few things at play. One is the vaccines, right? I mean, we are in a very different, even at schools that don't have vaccine mandates, even at schools that have, or colleges that have relatively low vaccine uptake in the scheme of things, you're still looking at, you know, 60, 70, probably 80% of students that are vaccinated and are largely protected against severe outcomes. Uh, add that to the protection many might already have just by virtue of age. You know, although, of course, we know that's not perfect, but we do know in general college age. A traditional college age students, I should say, or have less severe outcomes. Their demands on hospitalizations are low. You know, faculty and staff vaccination rates are high, even at colleges that don't have vaccine mandates. I'm not sure I've done enough research to say this comprehensively, but, you know, I've seen 80 plus percent even at places that aren't requiring vaccines. And uh, there's a lot of support among higher ed professionals for vaccination, I think. And obviously the vaccine, you can still get it, but it it makes you less likely to get it. It makes you less likely to spread it. And it certainly makes you far less likely to have severe outcomes. So I do think that obviously it's helping greatly. I also think, too, some of it is what do we not know? Like, it's actually interesting. One of the schools that did um, partially flip online, it gave faculty the right to choose to teach online for two weeks with Duke University. And Duke has been 
one of the most aggressive colleges on testing, COVID-19 testing since, you know, very early in the pandemic. And they have a highly vaccinated population. They have a vaccine mandate. At the time, at least that that this happened, they were saying 98% of their students were vaccinated. Um, And they had a, you know, pretty intensive surveillance testing program, and they turned up hundreds of cases, most of which were asymptomatic. So at a college that has less testing happening, they're not going to turn up those cases. So an asymptomatic case among a vaccinated individual, on the one hand, we know that person is far less likely to spread, but it's still not necessarily impossible they could spread to an unvaccinated member of the community. So I think that's part of it too. You know, so that was a um, how much information do we have and not have about the actual conditions of COVID on a campus. There was far more testing happening this year than this time last year, where there was virtually nothing other than uh, this time last year, colleges were starting to ramp up their surveillance testing operations around this time. Uh, but with the exception of a you know, relatively small number of you know, well, very wealthy institutions, most had very little to no surveillance testing happening at this time last year. And, you know, we're just doing symptomatic testing. So there's more of that happening this year, but still the amount of it is less. And then there's the question of how transparent they are to the outside world, which is another layer. You could have places that are might be fairly well aware internally and are a little less transparent to the rest of the world. So no, I, I and I'd say I certainly don't want to make it sound like we've sailed through this. Uh, and again, it's it's only it's it's not even we're in the second half of September. I was pretty blown away by those a uh, couple of Saturdays ago watching the huge football crowds and was sort of expecting that we would see big outbreaks. And again, people aren't symptomatic and they're not being tested uh, regularly. Maybe we we don't know the full extent, but I, I'm not sure we've seen major outbreaks in, in, a, in a lot of places, which again, sort of surprises me. Yeah. I think one thing I've been watching closely that I haven't seen in so many colleges that were sparsely populated last year are cool this year, you know, and, yep. and I was expecting more strains on quarantine housing to be reported than I've been seeing anecdotally, but, uh, but that's something I'm definitely want to keep watching because, uh, or, you know, even, even if a student is asymptomatic or, or, you know, mildly symptomatic, obviously there are questions about, um, where they'll be housed in that time. Yeah. And, and yeah. is there enough housing for that? This episode is sponsored by D2L Brightspace, the easy, flexible, and smart choice for your LMS. With D2L's powerful learning analytics, top institutions create personalized experiences for every learner to deliver real results and can act in real time to get at-risk learners back on track. Discover how you can level up your LMS at www.d2l.com. Talking about the pandemic's continuing effects on higher education with Elizabeth Redden, senior reporter at Inside Higher Ed. You just mentioned testing and and the potential underreporting of asymptomatic cases, et cetera. What are some of the other areas of the pandemic's effect on higher education that are just sort of least clear at this point, either because we don't have good windows into it or because it's uh, probably too early to really be able to gauge it. What are the other areas you're sort of thinking about and that 
our listeners should be watching for as you think about it? Yeah, last year, a lot of people took part from contact tracing, suggesting transmission was very limited in, in the classroom. Given that the Delta variant is far more contagious and far more transmissible, I've been thinking about that issue. I think that also might be an area, you know, an area where there might be differences in colleges in terms of how aggressively they'll be doing that contact tracing. But, but I think that's certainly a question I have is to what degree do some of the fundamentals that we came to almost see over and over again last year, are they questioned by what's essentially, you know, in many ways, a very different virus than what we were encountering on campuses last year? You know, I think certainly the impact on, you know, enrollment and finances, I think, and how long this goes on, right? We're in this weird, somewhat back to normal a little bit, but not really. And residential life is still somewhat curved and we still have to wear masks inside and we can't just hang out in the dining hall all day. And I just, you know, how, how this impacts the student experience, the student learning experience, depending on how long it goes on is a sort of muddling kind of normal, but not totally normal. You know, spring going to look a lot like this. I think that's going to have a lot of implications for just, you know, how appealing a four-year residential college experience is and how much people want to go out of pocket for it. And I just think that's the question, you know, what's the, you know, what's sort of the end game here? What's the, (laughs) um, you know, there was a lot of hope the vaccines would bring an end to the pandemic. And obviously they're doing a great deal, but, you know, we're, we're not where we, wanted to be in May, I think, <laughs> all of us. Those are all good questions. I mean, the, the, the question of whether the student experience, part of me feels like, and maybe we should take our whole uh, reporting team and send them out and, and follow some students around because it just is hard. And I have various nieces and nephews out there at, on campuses and I'm getting reports. And, and there's no question that the experience isn't the normal one. These basically three groups of freshmen that we have on campus this fall, the, the new freshmen, the sophomores, and to some extent, the juniors who really spent, you know, six or eight months maybe, and they're all returning to, to campus, you know, to some, some extent for the first time and, and having, you know, but again, not the experiences that I think they were hoping for. The question of sort of how changed it is remains a struggle for me sitting here in our our homes and <laughs> not on campuses. And I think that's, you know, certainly seeing anecdotal reports from publications elsewhere and, and our own coverage, but it's, uh, it's, it's a hard one to gauge. I agree. And I think it differs how changed it is by campuses. You know, you know there, there are colleges that don't have mask mandates that don't, you know, and that life is continuing on. I mean, another question for me, a big picture question, a major theme in my reporting over the past few months has been you mentioned earlier, Doug, the geographical differences and obviously and the political context differences. But I really, this division of colleges between those who can implement you know, vaccine requirements and mask requirements and are free to do so compared to those that cannot, either by state law or uh, Mississippi. The other day it was reported that the higher ed board there blocked Mississippi universities from, from having vaccine mandates. I mean, especially as, you know, obviously vaccine requirements are not new for universities. You know, I have them for mumps, meningitis, all sorts of things. So measles. So, you know, especially as COVID 
hopefully as the pandemic recedes and, you know, and widely viewed that this is going to become, you know, an endemic virus that we live with, you know, I mean, uh, but maybe not a pandemic proportions, hopefully for, <laughs> for too much longer. Um, you know, I do think that division between colleges that are able to, you know, require vaccines and those that, that can't, um, how that's going to impact higher ed in these areas longer term and whether that changes. I mean, this is not just a higher ed question, but sort of a changing political circumstances. I mean, another example of politicization really impacting higher ed's operations fundamentally. And that I think is one of the biggest changes from this year to last year. You know, last year there weren't fundamentally, basically, you know, richer, wealthier, uh, you know, more selective colleges had, you know, more testing, they had more but but every most campuses had mask mandates. You know, most campuses had reduced density on campuses. You know, there there was a certain toolbox, right? This is what we do, and basically the variable was how much testing you were able to do was the biggest variable you saw. But this year, we're just seeing such divergent approaches depending on what state you're in. Yeah, absolutely, and it's just an it's another way, as if we needed another <laughs> reminder of I don't know if it's right to say two countries, but certainly different countries, depending on where you are. And uh, I think it's affecting higher education in all sorts of ways. We're seeing it around certain curricular matters. And we always, we've seen some of those for a long time, but this is acute in a way that's has a bigger impact than I think we're used to. The other area that has become an increasing focus of ours generally, and I think is going to be a, an even bigger one going forward is on all the questions around equity in higher education and uh, the pandemic is another one of those things that is more of a separator and a something that expands the gap between those that have and those that don't in our society. And I think we're absolutely seeing that impact in higher education, both in enrollment, but even in what you were just talking about. If wealthier institutions are quote, better able to take better care of their people and then less wealthy institutions. And in general, we're, we see more diversity and, and the, the neediest students at more of those students at the less wealthy places. I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a sort of a, an expanding of the divide that COVID drives a bigger wedge through. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of when I think about some of the questions, some of them are questions that become more questions the longer this persists, right? So study abroad, you know, was suspended when the pandemic started. A lot of places have resumed study abroad in more limited ways. You know, that would be an example of you know, widely considered to be very impactful educational practice. And access to it has now been curtailed for this is the fourth semester that, you know, access to it would have been curtailed. Internships, you know, I, I just, you know, there's all sorts of of quality of education questions, I think that maybe in the first semester or even the first fall, we, you know, you could kind of just rant a little bit because it was an emergency. But as this persists, and, you know, these are really hard questions to answer. I don't have good, I'm not, you know, I don't have good answers, but it's, I think this is one of the areas that I would expect colleges to be looking at even their own practices. How has you know, department by department, class by class, how has delivery of this class been impacted? Is this ideal? And certainly there are ways in which the expansion of online has actually helped, right? You know, I mean, people have learned new new ways of teaching and, and there's sort of new toolbox. People have expanded their own toolbox for when, you know, it might be appropriate to teach something online or to, you know, to use a poll or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But how has sort of the quality of education been impacted? It doesn't help that we have never been all that great 
at gauging quality in, in learning. Um, so, you know, the questions of, is this, is this lesser than, uh, is a hard one to answer when your baseline isn't, isn't very good in terms of understanding. The other phenomenon that we've seen that I think is absolutely fascinating is that to the extent that, and this is greatly oversimplifying, but in the past, to the extent that we've had administrators in general being more interested in technologically delivered instruction and faculty members less so. We're seeing a pretty interesting flip right now where for a wide range of reasons, we have faculty members more interested than maybe normal in not being in the classroom physically and administrators having more incentive than they might have normally to really want students back. And how that dynamic plays out, as you said, the longer this lasts, is gonna be really interesting. One of the topics I did some reporting on maybe about a month back was uh, faculty who were seeking accommodations with the Americans with Disabilities Act law for to teach online uh, health-related or disability-related reasons. One person I spoke with kind of pointed out the irony that it's being seen as this crazy, you know, that some administrators were seeing this as this unreasonable accommodation we would never grant. And before the pandemic, they were offering, you know, $5,000 incentives to faculty who would teach a course online. So uh, it's gone completely um, upside down. That was Elizabeth Redden, a senior reporter at Inside Higher Ed who has helped lead our coverage of the pandemic since it began. Her last few words, completely upside down, continued to describe how a lot of the world still looks to most of us. Elizabeth and her fellow reporters and editors at Inside Higher Ed are doing our best to help you make sense of that upside down world every day on our website, through our frequent webcasts and reports, and in venues like The Key, which turned 60, episodes that is, this week. We can't do it without your help though. Please tell us about the topics you'd like us to explore, the stories and perspectives we're missing, and what we can do to help you and your institutions best fulfill your missions. You can write me at doug.letterman at insidehighered.com, or if it's easier to remember, at editor at insidehighered.com, or send me a direct message on Twitter or a note on LinkedIn. And if you're finding the key to be worth listening to, please subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. That's all for this week's episode of The Key. I'm Doug Letterman, and until next week, stay well and stay safe.